You said you woke up at five like a grandpa. Mm-hmm. What makes uh what makes that grandpa? Oh, I don't know. Just being up before the big ass crack of dawn, man. Yeah, I found that I've I'm getting pretty good at waking up at five without uh, even trying. That's pretty impressive. I, I just kind of keep the same routine throughout the entire year. So even though I don't teach during the summer, I just still wake up early to get get after it and get stuff done. I I'm not sure if I've always been a morning person. In fact, I'm almost positive I have not always been a morning person. But I think you can train yourself into a routine, and you do that routine long enough, and you can just kind of wake up without uh, without needing alarm clocks, things like that. Yeah, I wish I was a morning person more because I'm I'm certainly not a night person. I'm kind of like a I don't know. With kids, my my schedule just gets ruined. Yeah, there, there's you, an expiration date on a lot the, of that. Yeah, either you finally get the kids to bed, and then you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired right now. Or or in the morning, you're like, okay, they're not up yet. I'm gonna sleep a little longer. Yeah. How's the new house and uh, everyone uh, fitting into there? It's, you know, it's it's going okay. I, there's still so much to be done. I don't have a, a ceiling on upstairs. I don't have half a ceiling on downstairs. Um, I don't have half of my floor insulated yet down underneath my house. Um, Dude, that's got to be know, cold. How cold is it in Fairbanks right now? maybe zero or maybe five above it's it's been pretty darn warm this this whole winter so far yeah we've been uh pretty warm too haven't had any snow yet had like maybe a dusting that you can't really count um as much that kind of got somewhat low somewhat close to town but didn't really uh get into town but uh anchorage got yeah. hammered they've been they had 30 some inches in uh october or something like that in 24 hours yeah, it was like one weekend they got pretty much all of it. Yeah, yeah. Fairbanks, we have really low snow right now too, and it makes for me on my trap line. It makes it to be just a pain in the butt. I was like, when I went to go set out my traps and everything at the beginning of November, I was like tipping my snow machine over and um, you know cursing at the skies because it was just a son of a gun to get out there and you know get to some area that is a lot easier to deal with when there's deeper snow cover yeah what's uh what's your daylight now you got to be getting um like you don't have a whole lot so you got to be going out to check the trap line you probably get what in two hours three hours when you're actually checking the trap line uh during the daylight or are you doing it uh in dark both ways uh usually it's dark both ways because i'll be um i'll leave at like five in the morning to head out there and it takes me about an hour to get out there and then by the time I get unloaded and everything, it's, you know, still well before daylight even happens. So I just bring a headlamp, you know, and snow machine has some auxiliary lights on it and stuff. So I, it, I'm comfortable with, with that area after being there for a few years that it's, you know, it's not like spooky or anything. It's just, just, it is what it is. Yeah. It's kind of fun in the dark, actually. You've, uh, you've done some trapping. But you're not uh, an old sourdough trapper, so um, what? What you that got? Is correct. <laughs> what got you uh, kind of back into it? Um, you know, it, it was more just the kind of idea for me of just being able to do more stuff in the winter, since the winter takes up the majority of your year up here, and it's usually cold and dark. You know, it's it's just another thing to do to get outdoors and try and appreciate things and 
you know, it's just one more resource that most, you know, everyone has access to, but very little people do it. And it's, it's not for everybody. I mean, there are definitely aspects of it that I, um, that are kind of hard to get over, but you know, it's a lot of work to me. It's mediocre reward. I, you know, I suppose that if, if I had like a trap line where I was doing trapping lots of wolves or something like that, or Wolverine, you know, the really cool, big animals, like that would be something. But for me, it's just been Martin and, um, and a couple of ermine so far, you mm-hmm. know, over the past few years. And this past October, I, um, tried out some beaver trap and that was, you know, fun. Cause it was different. It was a challenge and everything. And it was, uh, a little, you know, it was definitely rewarding because I was able to walk away with some beavers. Yeah. There's, uh, Alaska's always had both ends of the trapping spectrum on the one end it's trapping so that you can sell it to the rich people to make their top hats from the 1800s. And then on the other side, you have a very practical use for clothing and you're trapping things that you're going to wear, or make gloves or make hats. And that's primarily what you're doing, right? You're looking at uh, making some, some hats for the kids, gloves. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Make a rough for my wife or one of her coats and, you know, hats that my kids are going to grow out of and gloves for us and, you know, just have fun with it. You know, I, I take my son out there when I can and when he wants to go. And so, you know, I don't, I don't pressure him or anything to go and he doesn't feel like he wants to wake up early. So, but it's, you know, it's just a fun pastime for me. Um, there are definitely aspects of it that are kind of hard for some kids to get over for sure. Like having to dispatch certain, you know, animals, certain ways or whatnot. And, um, so that part's the only part that I, I found to, uh, that's hard to get over with kids, but everything else being out there, you know, making cocoa, building little fires, mm. that kind of stuff. It's, it's fun for them. I remember going out with my dad and brother when we first moved up or at least, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if it was the first year we moved up or within a couple of years. So I was pretty young, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, you know, in that range. And, um, just being so dang cold because it would just be rainy and then icy. So we'd get the snow and then it would rain on top of the snow. So it was super slick. Uh, I remember one in particular, we were by this lake and the Martin was still alive and we brought our dog out and the dog, it minded just well enough. Uh, I swear we didn't think it was, we were going to lose it, but um, it kind of, we had a cat at home, and so it kind of ran up to the Martin, like, oh, there's another cat I can mess with. But the Martin was just, like, <laughs> lunging at the thing. The dog was like, wait, what, what What are we doing here? This is this thing's kind of aggressive. It wants to hurt me. <laughs> so um, so I, I grabbed the dog. It wasn't, you know, like, lunging at her. There was no, like, seriousness. I just made sure I kept the dog, the dog away. And Dad said, all right, turn around, because he didn't want me to see the, uh, the clubbing of it. And... Um, I turned. I, I heard like four or five just freaking brutal thumps, and I turn around and like my brother had stood there and he'd watched it because he was a little bit. He's three years older, so he got to, he got to watch the the dispatching, and uh, I didn't get to watch. I had to hold the dog. I was you know, protecting my eyes. My my loss of innocence would come later, I guess. And, <laughs> And so I asked my brother what happened, why it took so many hits. And when my dad had, sw- he just got this old rotten um, stick that that was laying there. And every time he like tried to hit the thing, like it would move. 
And one time he like hit a rock rather than the thing. So I thought, oh, okay, that's better. I thought he just beat that thing four or five times over the head. Like that's plenty. <laughs> that's plenty, Dad. But it was just yeah, he's small a mess. Yeah, he doesn't need that much. Yeah, and then um, another time, my brother and I were actually just talking about this. We had a trap line along a river, and Dad was always trying to figure out like survival type things, and he would tell us just as like a logical if things happen. This is this river ends up meeting up with the highway. So if something happens, you can take this river to the highway. If you can't find your way back, you're not really sure where you're at, it intersects with the highway, you can take this. So we were walking along it, and um, he was, he wanted us to go, like the three of us were going to walk, and we were going to actually literally see where the road was, and we are going to take the road back to the, to the rig. But, man, we just kept going and kept going and kept going, and I was so dang cold. It was it was miserable, absolutely miserable. And my brother and I were talking about it recently, and he said that Dad fell through the ice. And so we were just kind of like scrambling to try to get to the highway because he oh, fell through wow. the ice. I didn't think that – I thought it was just like he's, he's trying to teach us a lesson, but I don't want to learn the lesson. I'm stinking cold. I just want to go home. Yeah, so, that, that would be quite an exercise just to take your kids like, hey, we're just going to walk five miles to the road and then figure it out back. Like, yeah, no, I don't want to. Sorry, son. Yeah. Time when to that's, grow some chest hair. Thankfully for us, it was like the main artery, the main road that goes across uh, Prince of Wales. So like there was a chance that we would have gotten to the highway and someone may have been driving so we could have gotten a ride back to at least the little spur that we were off. It was main highway, maybe half mile down a spur, and then we hit the trail. Huh. But, uh, so we ended up like actually turning around and going back, back through our trap line, back, uh, up, up the river to the, to the road, uh, or to the spur and, and, and where our truck was. But, um, yeah, it was crazy, crazy to have uh, my little kid memories of just being so wet and so cold and brother's memories being the, oh, well, yeah, he fell through the ice. Like, dude, that was way more serious than I thought. Yeah. I mean, the three years difference between you and your brother can obviously make a world of difference for that kind of selective memory. Yeah. What uh, what type of lessons are you trying to teach Revan out there? Are you like, hey, this thing eats this and this does this and this is how you can make a fire? Or is it just more kind of a casual just time out with dad? Well, I you know, I don't try and turn everything into a, a lesson. You know, there are times and a place for teaching them stuff and, you know, hammering in certain details that I think are, might be important. But, um, you know, for me, it's just like, a lot of it is just having him out there, having him be comfortable and having him have fun so that as he gets older, he's going to continue to want to go out there and he's going to continue to want to like do different things with me outside, you know, whether it be like adventurous fishing trips or, you know, adventurous hunting trips, fly out type stuff. And it's the same for my daughter, but she's a little bit too young um, to really bring out to the trap lane. But like anytime we come across, um, any kind of track that might be different than what I was noticing before, you know, I'll stop and I'll look with him and show him like, Hey, look, this is the kind of animal that this might be because of the way that it's prints are in the ground. And which way do you think it's traveling? And hmm, do you see this here? It's kind of interesting why he did that or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And mm. Just try and take the time to appreciate like what's going on and look at the finer details. Cause you could just miss a lot. Yeah. I think our appreciation for nature right now is this weird, like in general, is this weird sort of distorted intellectual and digital version of the outdoors and of nature rather than actual experience. 
uh, there's this book, I think it came out in like 06 or 08 or something like that. It's called Last Child in the Woods and it talks about this nature deficit that people have. And we kind of observe nature through shows and through causes and things like that. And we're conscious of all these issues and these things that are hurting nature, but we don't actually have memories in general of being in nature. And there's just a different value and understanding that comes from that. And it's, and that was, that was like Oh six, Oh eight, like I said. And so now it's, it's even worse. I mean, the amount of people who are trying to do right by the earth, that's great. Like your hearts are in the right place, but there's, a lack of understanding uh, of how complex things are. Some things aren't clearly bad. Some things aren't clearly good. It's super, super, super complex, just like everything else is. But then we get served up this really simplistic, I say intellectual, but it's a non-intellectual view about the way things are. And this is the simple solution. We, You shouldn't hunt. You shouldn't do this. We shouldn't this. And Yeah. Man, it's, it's like a, a bad. Kind of a, a good example of that is you know, there's this whole pushback for the Ambler Road, which, which I agree, the Ambler Road should not be built. But, you know, there's all these advocates out there, which is great uh, for people being against the road. And, you know, it's awesome that people understand that, oh, yeah, this area of the Brooks Range is wild and scenic. It crosses two wild and scenic rivers. But it's like 99% of those people who are against it have never been in a place that's even remotely as wild as the Brooks Range or, you know, the North Slope is of Alaska. Yeah. Most people have never driven the Dalton Highway and they never will. Most people have never seen a caribou outside of like Santa's, Santa, the Santa Claus house in North Pole. Yeah. And they will never see a, a live wild caribou in their life, let alone hunt it or photograph it or appreciate it in any way or fish from streams and try and catch fish on a dry fly. You know, it's, there's just a major disconnect that, what I never understood is like why people live in Alaska and never go outside. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it, it can be a, uh, like you have your, your, your view of what nature is based on where you're at. That's kind of like where we're all at. So if we live in the city, our view of nature is what's at the park, which is a, you know, a representation of nature, you know, designed and cultivated by, you know, some architect uh, so then you hear about things like the road to Ambler or open up Anwire to drilling because you've never been there. You don't see what it's like and you don't know just the way things are. And you get on, you donate money and you get the hoodie and you do all this sort of stuff. And it's, you can still be against it. You can still be for like whatever. We live in a country that allows us to have these differing opinions. But um, just taking the time to kind of listen to, to what people are uh, are saying about it and when it comes to like the, the pebble mine is, is one of the most, I wouldn't even say controversial. It's, it's so straightforward for so many people. Oh, absolutely. Because it's a different type of situation because you're talking about best case scenario. You are ruining certain rivers for this massive mine and there's going to be massive holding dam. Like best case scenario, that is the type of stuff that we are going to have and all of the time those things leak, there's going to be a massive disaster in addition to the destruction of habitat. But that's not every single mine everywhere. And the terrain is different. The mines that uh, you got a lot of mining going on in the Fairbanks area. But because the terrain is different, it's not nearly as bad. Do you have, have a, you guys do different types of mining up there, right? When I say you, like Harrison's Mining Company, I don't have that. But 
No, I mean, there's plenty of people who have little small mom and pop claims all up around like the Steese Highway and stuff out there. But I mean, there's no wild and scenic rivers or I mean, there are there's a Charlie River, but, you know, they're, they're not cutting through big rivers where they're dredging and all this stuff. You know, they're doing small creeks and, you know, on little hillsides and stuff like that. You know, they're not impacting the biggest wild natural uh, salmon spawning habitat in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a lot different because it's super mountainous out here, um, you know, around the town, not in Fairbanks because we're in the valley, but in the surrounding areas, it's, it's just surrounded by hills everywhere. And that most but of that people, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, the Ambler Road project is a bit different in the scope than the Pebble Mine project because, you know, one is damaging aquatic habitat while the other is while it's still damaging aquatic habitat, it's also potentially impacting, you know, one of the largest caribou herds in, in Alaska. And so while not everyone appreciates caribou as much, a lot of people in Alaska really, it's kind of cut and dry because they understand the impact that fish have on our state and the world. Everyone eats salmon. Everyone knows salmon, but not everyone knows caribou and eats caribou. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, I, I can't even imagine living in that area because I'm assuming that there are some people that live in the area that would love jobs and are seeing the economic impact that could come from the mine. And so there's also that element. Well, <laughs> I think morally it's wrong for you to have this job that's mining because it might kill fish, but you also need to feed your family. That's always a conversation that uh, kind of gets left over. So I can still be against the mine. But acknowledge the fact that there's an economic factor that uh, in some of these rural areas, there's not much going on, which is one of the reasons why you have such a um, high suicide, alcoholism, abuse rates in a lot of, because there's just really nothing there. Um, and that's, it's pretty, it's pretty unfortunate. Not that mining would solve it. A lot of um, the, the mining companies will promise that there's going to be jobs, but are there going to be jobs for the locals? How much are they going to get? How long is it going to be? You know, it's just a couple of years. What is it? So there's just a lot that goes into it. So it's, it's nice that people are aware and it's nice that we can get and recruit other people to these causes, but, uh, um, there's just a lot more go that goes into it. A lot of stamina, academic stamina and paying attention that it takes to really understand what's going on. Yeah. And the lifespan for the pebble mine, for instance, is projected for only a hundred years. So that's two, maybe three generations of, you know, it's not like everyone who goes and works for the mine is going to be a millionaire. It's like, no, they're going to make it a decent wage and get by, but no one's going to get rich by being a mine hand, you know, whether they're being a mechanic or an operator or whatever. And it's the same for the Ambler mine where they are projecting a few different pits and they don't really even know how much Mm -hmm. or rather how long the the mines are even going to be around. They projected some of them could be around for 50 years. They project someone could be around for 75 to 100 years, but they don't really know. Yeah, that's crazy. Another thing, too, like we need these these minerals. Like as as oh, as, no as humans, we do. So it's like, well, don't don't ruin Alaska. Go whenever we say get it somewhere else or, or we don't do it here in the United States where we have to do it cleaner because we have standards. Like we're like indirectly – like supporting child labor and slavery. It's like, Oh God, everything is just, it's so jacked up. If you go too far down the, down the, the pipe there, that thinking you just, it's so depressing. It, it really is. Yeah. I was reading I mean, the uh, phone I'm talking to you on is 
exactly minute, that's been mine so yeah uh the book cobalt red <laughs> it's just horrible it's absolutely horrible um just the the powers um that uh the people who are in charge of the cobalt mining um and how it just impacts our lives and how because we're just massive consumers of that it's because it's in a different country we don't think of it we just think you know don't mine here don't do anything here uh, we'll get it somehow and then we're just participating in that or we're creating the market for that and then you know if if we go full tilt ev then what's what's that going to do like is it just going to make it that much worse um guaranteed yeah, it will yeah yeah and i'm not against ev i think it'd be great to have a truck that you could like just goes forever you know all that power pull a boat you know the you could light up your house, you know, from the battery or whatnot, but there's just a lot of things that I'm a little bit nervous about the amount of, it, it's pretty salty air down here. Um, how would we get it serviced? Uh, so I'm, there's a couple of people driving Teslas and that's great, you know, do whatever you want to do. Um, I just hope that, uh, it ends up being like good for them at, uh, the amount of salt in the air, like I said, the, the dampness, like, is that, is that going to be a problem? Is it not? Not, I don't know. So I'll let those other people get them first. And not that we were thinking about getting one, but, and then also the power, you know, we're on hydroelectric power around here. And when we, uh, if we do happen to have like low lake levels or anything like that, then we have to go on diesel. So in order to meet our energy needs, you know, what would happen if we had a lot more people go, uh, to electric vehicles like that would do, then we have a huge power problem. Price would go up. It's, Super complex. You can still own a Tesla. You can still get one of those Ford Lightnings, but you know it's just not. Nothing is as easy and simple as the Instagram cartoons make it want to be. No, and you know, down in the states, it's a bit more understandable where everything is so populated, and there are charging stations everywhere and that kind of stuff, and the weather permits for it. But like in Interior Alaska, or almost anywhere in Alaska, it's like an EV just. If you have a garage to park it where the battery's not going to drain, cool. But, you know, what does the cold do to battery life for anything? It drains it. So what's been interesting is that there are there have been about a dozen Tesla trucks that were delivered to North Pole with, in the past couple weeks. And so you see them driving around town here for cold mm -hmm. weather testing. And they're interesting to see in person. They look really cool. But at the same time, it's, you know, I don't know. It's strange. Yeah. It'd be great if it worked out. Like I like solutions. I like things that are going to make things better. Things we can address. These love it. Love innovation. But uh, yeah, super complex. Would you Absolutely. get a, a Tesla truck or one of those Ford Lightnings or something like that? No, never. Never. <laughs> no, I will. Yeah. I will never buy an electric vehicle. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not sold on that. But it's nice that we have it. It's nice uh, that some people might have it. Uh, I was going to ask you a question that I forgot. About <laughs> Tesla trucks, about something, yeah. I don't have the coffee in yet. My uh, wife bought an uh, espresso machine. So I'm hitting the fancy. espresso a little bit. Yeah, it is kind of fancy. It's, it's kind of fancy. I don't think it's super expensive, but it's kind of fancy. It looks good on the counter there. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a little dangerous, though. <laughs> it hit it hit you hard in the morning, but uh, I haven't had yeah, it yet. Get, Just kind of staring get at it. Drinking in my too mug. many, you get drinking too many espressos, you'll be fucking 
moving around like a bolt of lightning. Yeah, I'm not really sure that the kids would be prepared for that. If I show up first hour, three three espressos in, sports lit would be a little out of control. You'd be screaming at them. Yeah. So um, what else you got for uh, for the winter uh, trapping thing? We can kind of hem that uh, hem that up there. Well, when does the trapping season end? Um, you're going beaver. You got a couple beaver, a couple martin. What else you got there? Yeah, um, in October I trapped four beavers for a friend. Uh, she called me and was like, "Well, I have these beavers in my yard. They're chewing down my trees. Mm. You know, come sh- come shoot them." And it's like, "Okay, well, hang on. You know, I got to look at this and see what's going on." And because she she lives in town and you can't trap beavers on the main river in town here. It's close to trapping. So I was like, "Well, let me do some research." And you know, I called a fishing game and talked to the area biologist, and he gave me a nuisance beaver permit. Oh. I was able to trap trap those, and it was uh, worked out very well. You know, it's you have to trap underneath the water and everything, so it was kind of a trial and error for a few days to try and figure out where to place my traps. You know, if I had to do it in like a slide or trap under the water in their channels where they were, you know, going around and swimming. And so there was a few reconnaissance trips where I was just going out there and kind of looking and actually seeing them alive and seeing you know where they were and kind of what they were doing and that kind of stuff because you could there was still snow on the ground so you could sleep see slides where they were coming in and out to bring brush back into the water and so just try and narrow down pinch points and figure that out so that was a very fun and interesting thing to do i haven't trapped under the ice and honestly i don't plan to anytime soon but um for my trap line that's out of town here i actually closed it up last sunday because i'm uh taking over someone else's trap line here in the next couple weeks um it's an older guy who's been trapping it since the 90s and he's just getting too old to do it and um that particular trap line has he says he has um evidence that it was trapped since the 50s and he got it from somebody who trapped it from the 60s to the 80s and Hmm. so it's it's kind of like an established 30 mile trap line for mostly martin and lynx and fox and the occasional wolf but so that's going to be my next project just taking on that trap line and figuring out a new piece of country yeah how does that work like the it's not like a draw or anything like that nothing super official it's just kind of known where certain people trap like how would you if you weren't established if people didn't know that you uh, hunted this trap line how would you figure out where to go and then how do people do people respect other people's trap lines and areas? How does that work? Yeah. So this is my plug for the Alaska trappers association. If you're Mm. not a member, become a member. It's very economical. It's 30 bucks a year. You get magazines from October through April. Um, They're very family oriented. They do quite a bit of outreach. um, But like every organization, there's definitely room for improvement for organizational outreach, but you know, they do a great job of helping the next generation and, I would say the median age of the Alaska Trappers Association is probably in their fifties or sixties. Yeah. I would, I would say. Um, and if you, they have meetings all over the state, you know, South central in Anchorage, I think they have some like in Kenai. Um, I don't know about down Southeast if they have any chapter meetings, but, uh, in Fairbanks, it's the first Tuesday of every month, um, from October through April. And you can go there and you can ask questions. You know, you can talk to some of the board members because it's a pretty tight-knit community. And so if you wanted to 
start a trap line somewhere, you could go and talk to somebody and be like, hey, where should I go? And that type of thing. They're like, oh, we'll talk to this person. You know, they're looking for help or whatever. And so that's how you can kind of get introduced to it. You can pick, you know, Alaska is mostly open in terms of public land versus privately owned. And so there's no law that says that you cannot trap on someone else's trap line. It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, through the Alaska Trappers Association, there are like a code of ethics that trappers share with one another to, to be like, okay, if you're trapping this area, you know, please don't trap here type of thing. It's, it's kind of like a jerk move to trap on someone else's line, but mm-hmm. you can pretty much anywhere you want to go, you know, you can trap anything. You just have to find sign of animals that are around there. Um, but there's plenty of people who are willing to help out, you know, maybe they have like a 50 mile trap line and they'll cut you off a 10 mile section. Um, if you work something out with them or something like that, or you could help them for a few years and then take it over type of thing. And, you know, there's plenty of opportunities like that that are abound, but there's also no law that says that you have to post your traps. You know, you don't have to put signs up that say, this is my trap line or anything, but it's, it's fairly common for especially people who have longer trap lines and kind of tucked away areas that they'll put up a sign that says, you know, active trap line and they'll have a phone number on there or maybe Hmm. a name and you can post on the trappers association, Facebook page, or, you know, go to a meeting and talk to some people and be like, Hey, I'm looking for this person. They'll say, okay, yeah, here's his number. Give him a call. Nice. Yeah. When I was thinking about wolf trapping down here, I thought, all right, well, I need to talk to some people about where not to trap because I don't want to trap where they are. But then it's like, oh, are they going to come up to me and say, hey, why do you want to know where I trap wolves? Because if it's a good spot, then am I just trying to encroach and steal their spot? I'm like, oh, this is a. But I imagine it might be a little different if you're doing something like uh, wolf versus uh, uh, mink martin. Uh, mink martin down here, it's mostly just kind of a long uh, shorelines, rivers. We have a lot of little ri- uh, rivers, tributaries, things like that. So what are you looking at uh, for what's, what's good martin terrain up there? Martin, from what I understand, seemed to be in pretty hilly territory. You know, if you're in like a big flat ground, flat ground area, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of Martin. But once you start getting in the rolling hills and the mountains and stuff, then you'll see more of that. Does it have to be like near some, like where are they getting their water? Are they uh, burrowing underneath stuff? How are they getting water this time of year? That's a great question. I think a lot of them, you know, probably eat snow or get moisture from the things they kill, you know, Mm -hmm. blood, that kind of thing. And viscera of animals, they get probably a lot of moisture through that. Um, But where I trap, you know, it's on a ridgeline and there's no streams anywhere within a mile, any direction or several miles of any direction. So I would imagine that a lot of them are probably just getting it from snow or, you know, some kind of condensate somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, the deer down here, they don't drink water. They just eat their the morning dew and they get the water from, from that. But yeah, super interesting. Yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, like a trial and error thing for me because I am still new at it. I've only been doing it for a few years and only a couple of years trying to do it consistently throughout the year, uh, well, rather throughout the trapping season. But, you know, it's you can always see that these animals, whether they're, it's a fox, wolf, martin whatever they're always on the move you know they're never stationary they may have a a small home range depending on how big the animal is but they're always seemingly constantly on the move for food or whatever so i I take a journal with me 
and I write down like the temperatures where at my house versus when I get to the trap line, you know, what the snow conditions are like, what kind of sign I see, where the general sign is, like what direction they're moving, if they're just cutting across my trail or going down my trail, that kind of thing. Nice. You put it for your tags yet? I haven't. I have a list of um, tags I'm going to put in for hopefully within the next week or so, just actually sit down and do it. But work has been pretty busy. So that's usually where I do it is at work and where I have like 20 minutes to sit down and do it. But at home, I, I don't have that time. I would rather, you know, just be present instead of yeah. being on the computer at home. Yeah. You do, uh, do you split up your uh, choices or do you go all six into one? All six into one. Yeah. For pretty much everything. I have uh, my kids' godparents are both over the age of 65. And so they're, they're putting in, um, you know, they're reaching out to me. They're like, hey, what should I put in for, for, me to pro- for you to proxy hunt for us and stuff? Nice. And so I got some caribou going in there and some moose tags going in there on my behalf for proxy hunting and stuff. And so my chances are ever so slightly higher, but still putting in for pretty low chance to draw tags. Yeah. I'm pretty but regardless. I'm going to be, you know, doing something for sure, whether it's coming down to you next fall or Steve wants to do a, a float hunt for moose up North. And so we're going to try to see what exactly is going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That's the fun thing about like this year when I didn't draw anything and then I didn't draw Wyoming, I was super excited because then it's all right, let's do an Alaska one. Let's do something big. And at first I wasn't going to be able to do that one with Ryan. Cause it was like right at the beginning of school. So being able to make that happen, it's nice to have that second thing in the pocket. So if you want to make a moose hunt happen or you're going to make something happen, you don't draw, you can still make something happen. Spend the money you would have spent on the fly out for the draw hunt and instead do it on an over-the-counter one. It's pretty pretty sweet. You just have to promise yourself or know that something's going to happen and it's going to be good either way. You're not heartbroken. Yeah, that's that's the cool thing about you know, Alaska is you can travel all over the state and, you know, see different country, different kinds of animals that, that aren't normally where you are and stuff like that. So if it ends up working out that I come down to you, that, that'd be super exciting. Yeah. That'd be great. Well, Depending on what you draw, of course, and what Ryan draws, see what happens and see if I can be like, Hey, can I come crash on your floor? <laughs> yeah. I doubt, uh, I doubt I'll draw anything, but yeah, it'd be cool to have you come down here. And there was even some thoughts of, of doing something big around here. Um, like we have our, our normal runs and they're usually pretty productive, but it'd be cool to maybe do something else. And, uh, of course we could just save the money, but it could also be, uh, be fun to do one of those. I've never done a fly out for deer lived here. You know, everyone else does from down South. That's kind of what you do. And so it'd be kind of cool to maybe do, uh, do one myself. I'm sure part of me would think, man, I could have just done this and saved a whole bunch of money and got to similar terrain and similar opportunity. But it's sometimes cool to see some new country. We'll have to talk more about that off air, but uh, yeah, that'd be something I'd be interested in if, if you were going to do something like that to tag along and, you know, help pay the way for the airplane and that kind of thing and have a little bit higher chance instead of just, you know, right around town or whatever and where people have their normal honey holes and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. There's always opportunities and plenty of time to be thinking about it, especially uh, during the winter here. 
Uh, Are you putting in for Ishi punts or have any sheep punts planned? Uh, yeah, got uh, put uh, all six in on a sheep hunt, caribou, moose, goat. So you still uh, just put in for the the goat tag down by you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never draw. Never draw. No one ever will. But uh, yeah, so that's um, that's that's what we got. Yeah, the goat tag that I normally put in for it's it's been doing even though the population is still as strong as ever the they've been cutting back the tag numbers mm. lower and lower and lower so it went from you know a four to seven percent chance to draw to a less than one <laughs> yeah that's uh, kind of what you expect yeah and it's, some of those management tactics are interesting to say the least but can be frustrating because you're like man i know there's goats right here i know there's lots of goats i know there's great opportunity but why are you dwindling it down stop please yeah 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 a lot of factors play into it but uh yeah you guys have some level of trust otherwise i think if you just are get super cynical with uh, management and whatnot then it just ends up being pretty pretty hard life to not trust anybody about anything oh for sure man um but like on the sheep aspect of everything, there have been some really, really good podcasts lately on the sheep side that uh, have been put out recently that are really good listens. You're talking about whose podcast? Uh, Tyler Friel's Tiger oh, yeah. Talk. Yeah, so I so, Yeah, he put out one with an older, I, I can't remember, remember the guy's name, but uh, he was like an older kind of original sheep biologist. Hmm. And that one was really informative. And then he did a really interesting one with a father and son, um, Jerry Lees. And that one was pretty eye-opening because this, between the four of the podcast or the four of the people who were on the podcast collectively, they shot like 72 Rams. (laughs) And the one guy, he just shot his 39th Ram this year. Wow. And he has like 10 over 40 inches and multiple Boone and Crockett size sheep and everything. And, you know, listening to what he had to say was, was very enlightening. That was uh, Wayne Heimer. Yes. Wayne Heimer. That's correct. Episode 159. Yeah. I listened to that one too. Yeah. That's a good one. Absolutely. All right. Well, I got to get rolling here, make a little breakfast, get the day started and figure out what I'm going to do first hour. But Sounds great. Yeah, it was good to chat with you, man. You as well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, take care. See ya.